Welcome to Social Policy Connections inaugural podcasts. For those of you who are not familiar with our institution, Social Policy Connections is an independent ecumenical organization motivated and informed by Christian social thinking. Our purpose is to expand awareness of social justice issues in Australia and overseas and to influence public policy for the benefit of all people, especially the most disadvantaged. Social Policy Connections is not aligned with any political party. For more information on upcoming Social Policy Connections events, please visit our website located at www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au. The following lecture, entitled The Global Financial Crisis, Opportunity for Transformation, was presented by Professor John Langmore on Thursday, September the 10th this year, 2009, in the new study centre of Yarra Theological Union. In this podcast, Professor Langmore gives a succinct, comprehensible overview of the causes of the current economic crisis. He goes on to suggest political and financial reforms which would not only prevent a similar crisis in the future, but also bring about a more just and equitable society. Good to see you all here and uh, uh, to welcome John and to thank you, John, for coming. Uh, perhaps you all know uh, of John, but let me just read some of the things about him because it's, uh, it's really good to have someone of your standing uh, address us. Uh, on the theme of the global financial crisis, opportunity for transformation. Um, John is the Honorary Professor, Professorial Fellow at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne. He was Director of the UN Division for Social Policy and Development in New York for five years, from 1997, and then Representative of the International Labour Organization to the United Nations for two. One of his principal responsibilities while working in the UN Secretariat was organization of the special session of the General Assembly on Social Development held in Geneva in June 2000. Between 1984 and 1996, he was a member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Fraser, where he chaired several House committees on economic policy, social justice, the environment and territory. Um, recent publications include Dafur, an environmental and man-made disaster, and to firm the ground, restoring hope in Australia, published in 2007, and other publications uh, as well. Large or small, John, it's our pleasure to have you come and address us. Thanks very much, Stephen. It's a privilege and pleasure to be here, and uh, uh, I'm very regard very highly the work of the Institute and, and the Social Policy Connections. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, try and be fairly brief and speak about four things. The causes of the crisis, uh, the consequences of the crisis and what led up to it. Uh, third, uh, emergency actions and fourth, whether in fact uh, this does create an opportunity for transformation. And uh, I hope that you'll be familiar with some of it, so I won't uh, dwell on the causes for too long, but it's important to understand them because they are the basis for the, for the discussion about uh, what should be done and, and uh, what we've done in the longer term. 
cause of the underlying cause of crisis was the American subprime mortgage crisis, and uh, that involved the banks lending to borrowers who didn't have sufficient savings or earning capacity to service the loan, their loans, if anything went wrong. And such risky loans were justified in the expectation, of course, that housing prices would go on with their unrelenting increase and that their capital gains and that Therefore, if the borrower defaulted, the banks would be able to sell the house and, and, uh, and recoup their, their loan. And many of those loans were made by the two uh, government-sponsored agencies, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Uh, now, when the bubble burst, as uh, numbers of, of people and, and even some organisations had been predicting, uh, and at first because uh, house prices don't go unrelentingly in increasing forever, uh, but also because in some parts of the United States there was oversupply of housing, uh, and that's of course, by the way, the reason why there wasn't a burst bubble of any consequence in Australia, because in Australia we have a housing shortage, and, and so uh, even though there were some financial problems, there hasn't been uh, a, a significant decline in house prices here. So that was the first factor in the US. Well, the second factor, that, that was the first factor. There are five factors that I want to mention. And the first factor was the, was the subprime mortgage crisis. The second was uh, that a lot of the borrowing that the banks were involved in was short-term. And, and that came about because... They, they uh, involved themselves in what, what uh, they called securitization. They would put uh, large numbers of mortgages into a package and then on sell that package. Uh, and uh, uh, that allowed, by selling on the package, that released funds to them, which they could then uh, lend out again. And so there was no shortage of funds to lend out. And, and that meant that they became less careful about uh, the, the people who, who they were lending to. They checked less rigorously about whether they had the capacity to borrow. And, and uh, uh, also, uh, so that meant that they, they involved themselves in what became known as toxic loans. But those toxic loans, those potentially very, very risky loans to low-income people or people who had, uh, didn't have the, the, uh, the funds available for an adequate deposit, um, all, were all mixed in with these uh, securitized packages that were called collateralized debt obligations. You don't have to memorize that word, and if you're not already, that's fine. If you, if you don't know it, don't, don't worry too much about it. But it, it's just a word for these packages of mortgages. But, but when they started to include these uh, very poor quality uh, mortgages, uh, then, then the, the collateralized, collateralized debt obligations became more risky. And uh, yet the, 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 the institutions to which they were being sold had no way of checking on how uh, on how secure, how low risk they were. 
and um, that meant that, um, and, and, the, the, and the reason they could be sold was that the banks that were selling them, the institutions that were selling them, had very good names. They were they were widely respected, and in any case, they were they were uh, reported to have AAA status by the credit rating agencies. But the credit rating agencies, of course, didn't either have uh, an adequate basis for assessing the quality of these of these collateralized debt obligations, the, the securitized packages, uh, and that all um, was. The risk of that uh, was multiplied by the fact that uh, there were lots of funds available uh, through the hedge funds. Probably many of you will have heard of hedge funds. Hedge, hedge funds are uh, investment uh, vehicles, investment companies, uh, where usually very wealthy individuals or institutions deposit large <laughs> amounts in return for relatively high returns, and they haven't been in the US regulated in any way at all. Uh, they, there hasn't even been an adequate reporting on, uh, on, uh, on how many of them there are or, or what level of, of, uh, of assets they have. Uh, but by about mid-2007, they had equity capital of, of around two to two and a half trillion dollars. That's two to two and a half thousand billion dollars. So it's, they, were, they, were, they were really huge. And, and, uh, and the hedge funds were financing a lot of this, um, these collateralized debt obligations that, that, were being, that were being bought and sold. Um, in a situation like that, uh, where big returns were being made, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of financial in, uh, manipulation was going on, and I haven't described most of it, uh, partly because it's, it becomes so com complex and recondite that unless you're a financial market dealer, it's, it's very hard to, to understand, but, but also because it doesn't really matter. What, I mean, the fact of the matter was that... that, uh, that the collateralized packages were sometimes combined together into, a, into, a, into yet more complex and risky forms and, and a, a great deal of, of virtually pointless financial dealing was going on that had nothing to do with, with uh, investing in home building or investing in, in, in corporate expansion or establishment uh, and, and which achieved nothing except the uh, returns that the, that the dealing itself created. Uh, when when the, the house price bubble burst, uh, then the riskiness of this whole structure started to become apparent. Uh, hedge funds started to make losses. Uh, the banks started to call in funds that they'd lent the hedge funds. Uh, that they couldn't get them, and it was at that point that the two very famous collapses occurred of Bear Stearns and, and Lehman Brothers. Uh, Bear Stearns was rescued by, by uh, the government in the US, 
that line of trials was not. And it was at that point that uh, trust in in the in the uh, reliability of the in the capacity of of banks and other financial institutions to to repay loans that they that they uh, borrowed uh, collapsed and. Uh, banks stopped lending to each other, uh, uh, and and the ho- the whole purpose of, of the banking system, which is to facilitate borrowing and lending, uh, was not ceased to work properly. So, and and that lack of trust has become became immediately a major a major problem, and and part of the difficulty the government of the U.S. faced, of course, was how to enable that trust to begin to be rebuilt. Well, those, are, those are two factors. The, the third factor was that America was uh, almost flooded uh, with, with um, investment from uh, particularly Asian countries, but not only Asian countries, even from Europe, from Latin America, and to some extent even from from Africa, uh, through uh, uh, capital flight, uh, through, but principally through countries like China that were running enormous current account surpluses, and they were selling far more than they were they were exporting, far more than they were importing, and they put the the, the surplus uh, into the U.S. because they they thought it was going to be more secure. Now what that did was enable uh, the, the, the U.S. government to run large and, and increasingly large budget deficits because those budget deficits were, were uh, financed uh, by the sale of government bonds uh, to China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, the Netherlands, Germany, wherever countries were running surpluses or uh, countries that, that were uh, exporting uh, capital because of the risks of investing in their own country to, so that there was a problem with capital flow. And, and uh, that allowed America to, to sustain a, a, uh, a boom of, of, uh, of investment by, by and consumption by government, but also uh, uh, monetary policy was very, very relaxed. Uh, people could borrow, uh, and consumers uh, were, in fact, spending uh, more than their incomes in the last two or three years. In other words, there was no net household saving at all. Uh, there was there was net government borrowing. There was there was some uh, corporate saving, but it was it was much reduced. And investment kept on going because of the amount of investable funds that were coming in from overseas. That, that's a sort of background factor, really. I don't regard that Lockheed don't regard that as a cause, but it's an it's an underlying facilitating factor, if you like. The fourth factor is that all of this was happening uh, without adequate scrutiny from the regulators. Um, uh, uh, Kevin Rudd, in his uh, article in the monthly, described 
uh, the failure of the regulators, quoting somebody else, as, as the greatest regulatory failure in modern history. The, the, not only had, been, had regulations been greatly relaxed in the US, uh, but the regulators even were not uh, adequately enforcing what regulations were left. Um, the the, the um, opportunity for, for uh, banking style companies to do what they wanted was much was increased uh, in in uh, uh, in 1999, for example, uh, the U.S. Glass-Steagall Act uh, allowed, was uh, passed, which allowed commercial banks to run large investment banking businesses. So, so banks got, were able to diversify and become bigger and bigger, and and to, to, to develop enormous uh, uh, power and. Um, uh, and that, that was another institutional factor behind the growth of the diversification of, of, uh, of uh, securitization instruments and, and, so, and many, other, many other things too. Um, uh, there, there was, there was a, a presumption that this growth in the power of the financial uh, companies uh, uh, was was creating a, a kind of new world of financial uh, of financial manipulation, and it was generating enormous profits. Uh, in 2000, uh, 2004 to six, uh, the financial services uh, accounted for over a fifth of U.S. national income. The the, the way financial services are measured by the by the national accounts. The, the, Financial industry, its activities accounted for a fifth of, of, of total U.S. Uh, productive uh, activity. At that time, manufacturing, the whole manufacturing sector, accounted for for about 13 percent. So that so that financial services were uh, were accounting for far more than the whole manufacturing sector. And in 2007. Uh, the, the finance sector generated 41% of all corporate profit. So it's no wonder that that uh, people were attracted into the area and and uh, that, that these huge incomes of which we've all heard were generated and uh, uh, the, the sector became uh, a very exciting place for, for those who were simply uh, interested in, in making money to work. Uh, as one uh, banker said, while the music is playing, you have to get up and dance. And so there was a kind of inherent logic in that the, the people felt uh, in this exuberant uh, financial, uh, wildly over-optimistic uh, financial sector. And it led to hubris, of course, to overweening pride, to to the sense that these were uh, the laws of the universe and, and uh, uh, for whom there were no constraints. And, and of course, in that situation, uh, a point of moral failure has been asked. I mean, the, the people, people were, were 
in love with wealth and were worshipping you. Uh, not that this is my point on it. And, and uh, the, the problem was, like the frog in the, in the, in the, in the gradually warming uh, glass, at what point uh, should people have drawn a, a line and said, no more, we've gone too far, this is, this is absurd. That uh, for a lot of people that point was not reached and until the crisis occurred. So there were, there were many factors involved, which I've only just touched on, and, and others uh, who are more involved could explain in more detail. But it included greedy bankers, sleepy regulators, naive or misguided uh, political leaders who weren't watching carefully enough what was happening, happening reckless or ignorant uh, mortgage borrowers, indulgent consumers who were not saving, who were spending all their, all, their, all their incomes and more, and so on. So th those, were the, those were at least amongst the major precipitating factors. But there was underneath those four factors uh, a fifth, and that is about the nature of economic theory. Uh, the liberal economic ideology, which has been dominant in the US for the last quarter century, as it has been in Australia, in Australia under both uh, uh, Labor and Liberal governments, um, uh, has, has, been, has been based on, on, uh, on, on, on sand, to use, to use the biblical reference, really. It, it's been based on uh, a number of theories that are weak, that are, that are not convincing, and to, that are not soundly based, that are not firmly based. The first, the, one of the, and the two I want to mention are, are, are rational expectations and the efficient markets hypothesis. The, the rational expectations hypothesis is that markets will work uh, perfectly or near perfectly because people who are involved in the markets will know the information uh, and will act uh, uh, in their own interests and that will make, make uh, the markets uh, operate predictably and, and efficiently and, and, uh, uh, and more than that, uh, the, the, the rational expectations theory which was generated uh, at Chicago by uh, people uh, linked with Friedman and, and, and the like, uh, was that uh, the, the Keynesian approach would not work because, because uh, uh, people involved in the markets would expect that if a government increased expenditure to offset uh, declining employment opportunities, that that would automatically lead to inflation and so would not be effective in the medium term in generating uh, additional economic activity. I mean, it's a more complex theory than that, but that, those are the, that's the skeleton of it. That, that is the, the rational expectations uh, theory is, uh, underpins liberal, neoliberal economic ideology. And, and so does the efficient market hypothesis. Uh, the, the efficient market hypothesis is based on the belief that uh, 
the, the financial market participants are, are, are rational and competitive uh, and will set prices that, that take account of all the available information as, 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 um, as the rational expectations hypothesis does. Um, but um, uh, because the market uh, knew, knows more than anyone else, uh, there's no point in regulators attempting to prevent or control market imperfections. And, and uh, the, the, the theory survived despite the repeated evidence of major financial turbulence uh, because it conveniently justified free market ideology. That is, that there was very little place for, a regula for regulation because uh, uh, it basically wouldn't work. The people in the market better than the regulators. So those are, those are five uh, causes that I want to mention. Then I want to move now on to consequences and I want to talk about two. One, one of the long-term consequences of, of this uh, ideology, really, of, of neoliberal ideology, and the second is the immediate consequences of the crisis. And the, the consequence of the, the the, the, the effect of, of the quarter century, the neoliberal quarter century, has, has been uh, to, to focus on inca personal income maximisation. Uh, if, if you ask Paul Keating or, or, or Peter Costello uh, what their goals had been, uh, and they would give you an honest reply, it would have been about uh, maximizing income. Um, not, not, as I want to go on to say in a minute, uh, improving human well-being. They would, and if you ask them that question, they would say, oh, but income's a proxy for human well-being. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's, I mean, the income maximization really is is uh, the end point of, of, uh, of neoliberal policy. Uh, economists uh, of the neoliberal school believe that we are all utility maximizers, by which they mean we all want to maximize our income, we all want to maximize um, uh, our, our economic security. And um, I can see you've got a question. No, just a clarification. All right, okay. Um, when you said markets work perfectly, uh, and that was the definition in one of the hypotheses, efficient market. Efficient market, market yes. yes. What's perfectly mean then? Does that mean it creates the maximum amount or it fits in the means It means that, that uh, uh, markets are clear, that, that supply and demand uh, uh, match because a price is set which, which, uh, which persuades everyone who's selling to sell and, and everyone who's buying to buy and, and, and the market clears. So no overproduction or underproduction. Yes, that's right, that's right. And, and uh, that, it, that it will do so without excess profits being made. And that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the theory. But of course, in fact, markets, markets normally fail for, for a range of different reasons because, because 
uh, there's imperfect information uh, because there, there are, uh, there's not perfect competition between firms as a monopoly or an oligopoly or a, a few firms who are, who are influencing each other and the price that they set uh, or for a range of other reasons as well. Um, the point I want to go on to say in, in relation to to the long-term consequences of, of maximising income is, is that that is, is uh, seductive and, and corrosive of, of, uh, of, uh, of altruism, of generosity, of community solidarity. It means that and it, it contributes to generating greed. I mean, if, if people are simply concerned to maximise their own income, and if everybody uh, were in fact doing that, then, then, then we would all be competing with each other and, and with, with no care for each other at all. Well, of course, that's not, that's not what, what, what communities are like. I mean, we all know that everyone, in fact, has some altruism. Some have more than others. Uh, so everyone has a certain amount of generosity. Uh, Etc. And, and we do care for each other to some extent. And so that that oversimplification of the economists about income maximisation uh, isn't an adequate, adequately accurate description of of the motivation for behaviour. And but it, but when governments and business and so on are are repeating um, this repeatedly as if it was the guiding principle for social life, then it, uh, the better uh, uh, qualities, the better sense of morality, our care for each other. And a lot of Australians, and I think a lot of Americans too, and lots of people in other countries, have been concerned about the erosion of, um, uh, of generosity and, and solidarity and so on, which has happened in our country and in many countries during the last quarter century. So that's, that's I could talk a lot more about that, but, but that's, that's the long-term consequences of the ideology that I want to talk about. The, 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 the immediate and enormously destructive consequences of the crisis, uh, which was the end point of this, this neoliberal quarter century, is clear to us all. Uh, the, the rapid rise of unemployment, uh, the the uh, economic uh, contraction, uh, the uh, the turbulence in in global in the global economy, uh, the decline in world trade, a very sharp decline in world trade, uh, the, the falling prices of commodities, the declining uh, incomes of developing countries, particularly, uh, and so on and so on. I mean, there, there's been there's been great turbulence in the U.S. Significant, though less turbulence here, a lot of turbulence in, in Europe and decline in Europe uh, and, uh, and in many other countries as well. The human cost of the crisis has been enormous and I, I don't want to spend time dwelling on that because I'm sure you all know it. So the third, I want to go on now to the third thing, which is about the emergency action that that governments have taken to deal with the immediate consequences of the crisis. And in a minute, there's a chance now for, 
or longer term change of strategy. But first of all, in relation to the emergency action, uh, of course it was necessary for governments to find ways of counteracting the decline in economic activity that, that, that was going on. And uh, there, were, there were major it was an ex in the U.S. It was extraordinarily difficult for the Bush administration first, and then for Obama when he came in uh, to work out what what to do about this. Uh, and uh, there's quite a lot of criticism around about what what Bush did, and there's some about what uh, Geithner has been doing under under Obama. You, one has to have, I think, some sympathy with the enormous complexity and, and horror of the, of the situation with which the policymakers were faced. And it was, of course, necessary that there be some way of propping up banks. Now, of course, that, that was a, a, a very difficult thing to do because the banks were the principal cause of the problem. Uh, to prop them up meant putting taxpayer money into, into, into companies that had made huge profits themselves, of which we're all aware. Uh, but at the same time, if they had not been supported, then the banking system might have collapsed. And, and then there was no chance at all of getting back to, to a, a more uh, reasonable, a more stable pattern of, of economic activity again. So how to do that without uh, destroying the moral incentive to for the banks to behave honorably uh, and, and decently. Um, uh, but to ensure that they survived uh, was, was a, a major difficulty. And of course, there had hundreds of billions of dollars have been put into to the rescue of the banks in the US. Uh, uh, and some people are rightly very critical of that, but um, something had to happen. It may not have been particularly well done. In Australia, that wasn't necessary. But what was necessary in Australia, uh, and in the US also, was that the government uh, act in a, what's called a counter-cyclical way. When the economy goes down, the government absolutely responsibly should build up uh, its expenditure in order to try and maintain employment. I mean, if you regard employment as uh, central to human well-being, then it, it, it is the government's responsibility to try and uh, minimise unemployment. Uh, and it, 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 it does that by uh, stimulating economic activity in a range of ways. Now, there's been a, a, a vigorous political debate in Australia between the government and the opposition about whether uh, the right government has behaved, uh, respond, has adopted the right uh, policies in, in borrowing uh, tens of millions of dollars in order to uh, build additional school buildings to, uh, to give the uh, grants to low-income earners, uh, to uh, improve infrastructure, uh, to with insulation in the houses, etc., etc. Um, you, know, you know that 
it uh, reflected very well on, on many countries, but not least amongst them, uh, President Obama, for being able to get agreement on a number of stimulatory policies. One that I was, uh, felt was particularly important was a new issue of something called special drawing rights. You probably won't have heard they're a form of international currency created by the, by the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund can, can agree to create them and issue them to uh, member countries in proportion to their, to their voting at the, uh, their, their vote at the, uh, at the IMF. Uh, with, with many others, uh, I've, I've been campaigning for 10 or 15 years to try and increase the number of special drawing rights because they're an, a good way of increasing the reserves of developing countries. Uh, they're, they're not the most effective, they're not um, as effective as they could be if, if all of them were issued to developing countries, but even to get some of them to developing countries is a way of increasing their capacity to uh, import, and that's, that's valuable for them. And and in the two issues of special drawing rights that there have been before, uh, which, had, which totaled about 50 billion, uh, uh, that, that was quite small. So to get 250 in one decision was a major improvement. And uh, that also, by the way, creates the basis for the possibility of, uh, of a new reserve currency. There have been a lot of debate about the, the costs for the world of, of being so heavily reliant on U.S. dollars as as reserve a reserve currency gives the U.S. an enormous economic advantage, which is not available to other countries. If there was uh, a reserve currency that was not just one uh, one country's currency, uh, it would it would remove that advantage that the, the U.S. has and, and spread the benefit more widely around and. The Chinese are now starting to urge that special drawing rights be used, become a more widely used international reserve currency. So that, that's probably enough on, on the, I've gone on too long. Um, uh, that, that, that's enough on, on the emergency action. The question that is of greatest interest to all of us probably is whether this crisis and its consequences create the opportunity for uh, development of a new paradigm, and and uh, uh, I think the answer is 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 hard to discern. Uh, I, th I think I think there is no one person that is that we don't have a Keynes who's, who's who's saying this is the way we should all go. But there are a whole lot of straws in the wind, which together could could contribute to, evol to evolution in a more constructive direction. But but there are also very strong forces that are uh, wanting simply to return to the situation that we had before, and that will absolutely rigidly re resist any any movement towards towards uh, a more uh, a more constructive paradigm. But let me talk a little bit about what, what a, new, a new paradigm might look like. 
Um, first of all, uh, where, what would it be? What would it be aimed? With? And, and of course, we need to move beyond this goal of incarceration towards a goal of well-being and the common good, or well-being, justice, and the common good. I was very happy to read in, in Benedict the, the, the 16th encyclical uh, where he is he's advocating policy. Um, and uh, uh, we can talk later perhaps about what well-being involves. It's a much, it's a much broader concept than income maximisation, but it does include, of course, economic security, but it includes much more than that. It includes uh, justice and equity, it includes um, health and education, uh, it, it, it includes opportunities for vitality, for, for cultural development, uh, and so on. It's a much wider ranging and, 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 and more encompassing goal. And I, I'm glad to see when I look up the Treasury website that they, talk, that they say their goal is now well-being. Well, I, I hope they really mean that. But, but um, I, I think that Australia has a long way further to go to really put well-being, the common good and, and justice right at the heart of public policy. I don't think we're there yet. If, if those were the goals, um, where would that lead? And what are the other lessons from the crisis that might lead us in a somewhat different direction? And one is, surely, I can't imagine there'd be anyone in the room who would disagree with the need for a more effective military framework for the banking system, for, 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 uh, for uh, business generally in a, in a number of ways. And I notice that the Pope says this too, you know, and I quote, he said, he, he, he wrote in the encyclical, as we take to heart the lessons of the current economic crisis, which sees the state's public authorities directly involved in correcting errors and malfunctions, it seems more realistic to reevaluate their role and their powers, which need to be prudently reviewed and remodeled so as to enable them, perhaps through new forms of engagement, to address the challenges of today's world. In other words, the, the role of, of public authorities may well have to be enhanced and strengthened. And, and that seems to me to be, to be, to almost go without saying, and although there's resistance to that in some parts of the financial sector, there's widespread recognition that it's got to happen. The question is exactly how it might happen. Um, Another aspect of, of, uh, of uh, I, I, I've written quite a lot about well-being in a, in, a, in a book called The Firm the Ground and what it might lead, lead to in Australia. Uh, but a, a, another very good book I'd really love to tell you about is, uh, is this one by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett called The Spirit Level. Why more equal societies almost always do better. And, and what he does in this book uh, I understand because I haven't yet read it, but I have heard him speak, um, and, and he spoke very persuasively. Is to, is to show that in more equal societies, uh, with with less uh, less wide gaps in the distribution, of less widely spread uh, inequality of income, uh, 
uh, all sorts of indicators of well-being are, are, are better. There's, there's less crime, there's less violence, uh, there's, there's less uh, drug use, uh, there's etc., uh, etc. Et and and the, 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 the statistical evidence uh, is remarkably consistent. And it, it, it won't surprise you probably, but it is impressive to find the evidence uh, so clearly uh, uh, described in, in, that, in that book. So, so those are a few remarks about, about where, where an alternative paradigm might head towards. Now the question is how do we get there? Uh, and uh, uh, there are many aspects of that. But let's look at what government can do for a start. And what government can do uh, is build up those services that contribute to human well-being. To build up health services, to build up, uh, and by health services I don't just mean hospitals, uh, I mean aged care and, and early childhood care and, and, um, uh, and uh, preventative health care, um, uh, education, um, and, and a whole lot of the uh, areas that are in fact face-to-face -face human services. And the, the one central thing I want to say about, about uh, growth of employment is that, is that most employment is already in human services in countries like Australia. In Australia it's roughly 70% of all employment is in human services. Uh, Services like health and education are big employers, but so is retailing or um, uh, restaurants or uh, all, all kinds of financial sector actually for human service, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to advocate increasing that one at all. Uh, but, but if we're concerned to build up employment, then, then expansion of human services uh, is, is one of the principal ways of doing it. Uh, and in a way that doesn't multiply uh, energy use and, and generate uh, disproportionate amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, other aspects of, of public priorities would, would be surely to increase research and innovation, to in, in invest more in, in public infrastructure, uh, you know, trains and trams and bicycle paths and so on, and I would say also uh, to cut defence and intelligence. Uh, in Australia, one of the things I'm most personally critical for is, is guaranteeing uh, a 3% a year real increase in defence expenditure when it will not guarantee expenditure in any other area of public outlays. When, uh, and this, for a country that's one of the safest in the world and which is not not directly threatened at all. Seems bizarre and seriously unwisely misjudged. I won't go on about that. How, how, how is that those kinds of services paid for? Well, apart from by the cuts that I've, I've mentioned, uh, by a tax system that is equitable, simple and efficient, and of course the government has an inquiry in the tax system underway, and let's hope it moves in that direction. Uh, would such an approach to government services be, be, be feasible? 
Of course it would, because what the electorate wants, one opinion poll after another, shows that what the electorate wants more than anything is improved health services, secondly, improved education services, thirdly, improved infrastructure, uh, in, in an order of priority, uh, defence is down about eight. Uh, in other words, there is, it, it would be electorally feasible to move in ways that would meet all the, the obvious needs for human, human services. That's a whole lot of remarks about the role of the state. Uh, very briefly, secondly, in terms of a new paradigm, there clearly has to be a more active regulatory framework in the financial sector. And I think since I've gone on so long, I won't say more about it. But that is under active study, both globally and in Australia. And there will be a very important meeting about it at the G20 in Pittsburgh around the 20th of September. And uh, you'll, be able, you'll all be able to read more about what, what is agreed there. A, a third feature of of a new paradigm must be a much more environmentally responsible one, upgrading renewable energy use, research, innovation and production, um, and, and cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, uh, it seems to me the government has let us down very badly uh, over that by the, the extreme modesty of their, of their goals. Uh, if, if the issue of of uh, global warming is to be adequately addressed, much more ambitious goals must be set and ways of achieving them introduced. Of course that's complex, of course it's contra politically controversial, but it is the role of government to <coughs> exert leadership and that means, in this case, taking on the coal producers and, and, and saying, look, there's a, a longer term global imperative for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and we're going to play our part in it. A fourth issue uh, is about the international uh, uh, economic and financial system and, and uh, I, I want to make one, just one uh, general point here, although I could talk a lot about this because I've done quite a lot of work on it, and that is that um, that every country needs to be able to take, have some part in the debate about uh, the future uh, international economic and financial system. And limiting that debate to the G20 is not good enough. It's understandable that Australia uh, wants to rely entirely on the G20 because we're a member, therefore we've joined the big players and it's lovely to be be on the stage with the US and Britain and so on. We weren't part of the G8, now we are part of the G20. But there was a conference at the UN, which, which is attended by all the countries of the world at the end of June, on the global financial crisis. It had an excellent report on the table, prepared by a, a fine committee, chaired by Joe Stiglitz, and Australia was, a, was, was barely a passive participant. And that's simply not good enough. You, you, of course it's important to be actively involved in the G20, but it's also important to be actively involved in the, in the UN, and, and the government was not at that meeting. Now, there were lots of proposals, uh, and I, but I won't uh, go into them now. 
Uh, and the final point I want to make is, goes back to this point about economic theory. Uh, it's, it's clear, I think, that the underlying assumptions of economic theory have been blown apart by the financial crisis. That means that economic theory needs to be rethought. And it needs to be rethought uh, on, a, on, a, on a much sounder basis. And what, how might that happen? Well, that's a, that's a big subject, but at the very least, it should be soundly empirically based. In other words, it should be based on, on what actually happens, not what people imagine happens. It should be based on a study of economic history and a study of, of, of the history of economic ideas and not taught to students as if economic theory was some form of revealed truth, which is what Melbourne University and the Australian National University and all the Australian universities are mostly doing at present. Economics is not adequately taught in Australia. Um, uh, there, are, there are some signs of, 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 of uh, growing scepticism and there's a, there's a sub-discipline called behavioral economics which is starting to grow. Uh, there's another one called institutional economics. Those need to be encouraged and others as well uh, so that there's a more, more, uh, more, pra more pragmatism, more, more, uh, more study of of, of what really happens rather than, rather than a theoretical problems. Uh, and, and as well, it, need, I think it needs to happen in the context of goals like well-being and, and justice and, and the common good. And if those became the overriding goals, then all sorts of other evolution would happen. I'm sorry I've gone on so long.